I do think that if you're like, yeah, I totally want to build a body positive home, show me how, I think you're actually embarking on some microactivism because if you can commit to building a body positive home, you are going to potentially raise a body positive kid who's going to maybe then go out into the world and make the world a more body positive place. Can I have another snack? Hey, and welcome to the Can I Have Another Snack podcast, where we talk about food, bodies, and identity, especially through the lens of parenting. I'm Laura Thomas. I'm an anti-diet registered nutritionist, and I also write the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter. Today, I'm talking to Zoe Bisbing. Zoe, who uses she, her pronouns, is a licensed psychotherapist, mother of three, and creator of Body Positive Home, a learning and healing hub for humans who want to nurture a more embodied, an inclusive next generation. Zoe directs a group therapy practice in New York City where she and her team treat folks across the age, gender and disordered eating spectrum. A certified family-based treatment practitioner, Zoe's work with families of youth struggling with eating disorders fuels her passion to raise awareness about prevention, early detection and immediate intervention for eating disorders. Today we're going to be talking about how to build a body positive home and this is Zoe's idea of how we can build buffering skills right into the foundations of the homes and schools that we nurture our children in. But first I'd love to tell you about the benefits of becoming a paid subscriber to the Can I Have Another Snack newsletter and whole universe. And of course there are cool perks like being able to comment on posts, our Thursday threads, snacky bits, and exclusive posts on intuitive eating, weight-inclusive health, and responsive feeding. But more than all of that, being reader and listener supported means that I can better control who comes into the space. In other words, we keep the trolls and the fat phobes out. And if they do sneak in, at least it's cost them and I can still boot them out. Having control over who comes into the space is essential for creating a safe, nurturing space away from diet culture where we can discuss the both and of why it's hard to have a body and how we deserve to feel safe in them, or why it's okay for your kids to eat sweets without the food police breathing down our neck. So if you're still not convinced, here's a recent testimonial from someone in the CHAS community. I wish I had access to the advice and information you shared when my kids were little, but it's still valuable now they're nearly adults for a couple of reasons, at least. Firstly, having only been diagnosed as autistic in middle age, I have had a complicated relationship with food for most of my life. From childhood fussy eating through stigma over my higher body weight and internalized fat phobia to temporary success with dieting, followed by the inevitable return to my previous size. Your writing has helped me to cast off many of my own hang-ups about food, weight, and health, making me a better role model for my kids. Secondly, your advice helps me to support and advise my kids with their own food, health, and body image issues, and to advocate for them to my family and friends. I believe in showing my appreciation for people who provide me with help and support, at least by saying thank you and, where possible, with feedback and or financially. I can't financially support everyone I'd like to all of the time, 
but I do what I can when I can. Thank you for all you do, Laura. Well, thank you for that lovely review. And I guess the question is, what are you waiting for? You can sign up today at laurathomas.substack.com or find the link in your show notes. It's £5 a month or £50 for the year. And if you can't stretch that right now, just email hello at laurathomasphd.co.uk with the word snacks in the subject line and we will hook you up with a comp subscription, no questions asked and no need to explain yourself. All right, team, here's Zoe. I'm Zoe Bisbing. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and a licensed psychotherapist here in New York City. I run a group therapy practice. That's sort of, I guess, my day job, a practice called Body Positive Therapy NYC. And I have a group of really wonderful clinicians that work there with me. And we we treat folks across the age and gender spectrum, struggling with all kinds of disordered eating eating disorders. And I do specialize in working with children and adolescents and their families Mm. with eating disorders, which actually is sort of how I got into my other side hustle. hustle. (laughs) (laughs) My side hustle slash baby slash passion project, which is now called Body Positive Home, once was the Full Bloom Project, but it's sort of evolved into Mm. Body Positive Home. That work, I guess you could call it, I'd be curious to hear what you call it, but I think of it as advocacy, mm. education, and most importantly, prevention. It's mm. my best attempt at disordered eating prevention, body image disturbance prevention, eating disorder prevention as far as we can, because of course we can't entirely prevent eating disorders. But all of the work, my social media presence and speaking and all of it, it comes from a deep concern that I have for all of us. Just as you were speaking there, I I would add activism into the mix and this may be foreshadowing a little bit, but definitely there's there's a thread of activism there and body politics, which I know we're going to come back to in a minute. So yeah, we're going to get into what we need to run a body positive home in just a second, but I would love it if you could tell me, why do we need this? Like you kind of alluded to it a little bit there, but maybe ground that in a bit more context for us. As a human being that lives in this world, but most importantly, as someone who's worked in a variety of treatment centers, working with people with like full-blown eating disorders, I am been blown away by how eating disorder treatment, right, interventions, how we help people relearn how to essentially claim a healthier relationship with food and body, that a lot of the interventions don't look a lot like the culture we grow up in. So it's almost like even though there is a difference between someone that struggles with disordered eating versus a full-blown eating disorder. Yeah, absolutely. um, There's a difference between having kind of body discontent versus like body dysmorphia. There's a difference. Um, Mm -hmm. But I was struck when I started my career on like eating disorder inpatient treatment units, outpatient treatment programs, how the way we treat eating disorders is to essentially help people become unafraid of eating and not just eating, but like eating robustly, right? Mm -hmm. That's sort of what treatment looks like, robust meals, multiple components at meals, multiple times a day, right? Like it's like the opposite of the diet messages that we get in our Mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. And so I think prevention is, I think we're all, we all need recovery, Because we all have grown up in this very disturbed culture where I think it's fair to say our culture has a disorder of its own in terms of bodies, 
that are valued and devalued and foods that are bad and good and all of this that we all know, right? Yeah. But when you go into an eating disorder treatment center, you start to get these messages that you'd think would be helping us get back to where we once were. But a lot of us were never there. We never had that baseline in the first place. Yeah, we never had that baseline. And it's not necessarily one person's fault. Like, I'm mindful that <laughs> my mom is present over here. She's getting ready to go. But <laughs> she's always mom. <laughs> yeah, you got to shout out, mom. She's a product of a very toxic culture. Mm-hmm. It's not her fault that she suffered at the hands of terrible messages about what women are supposed to look like mm-hmm. or what she should eat or what she shouldn't eat. And then how does that not trickle into the next generation and, you know, and so on and so on. And so I think that prevention and making, quote, eating disorder prevention more accessible and more like just every day, right? I think eating disorder prevention, as you know, it's sort of siloed in like academia. There's like mm-hmm. research that shows mm-hmm. us this kind of talk is helpful. This kind of language is unhelpful. This kind of feeding dynamics are helpful for prevention, but nobody is really talking about it in a way that makes it accessible and makes you feel like, oh, I could actually build a preventative environment for the kids that are either in my home or in my school. And so that's the thinking behind a body positive home. It's really taking elements of all of these different disciplines, right? It's it's pediatric yeah. feeding, responsive feeding, it's health at every size, or maybe more importantly, weight neutral health care. And there is a social justice piece to it, which is maybe when you when you use the word activism. And I do think that if you're like, yeah, I totally want to build a body positive home, show me how, I think you're actually embarking on some microactivism. Mm-hmm. Because if you can commit to building a body positive home, you are going to potentially raise a body positive kid who's going to maybe then go out into the world and make the world a more body positive place. Mm-hmm. And I think we can talk about that term body positive. I actually I like that you wanted to go there, but that's sort of the thinking. So what Zoe's talking about here is that I, I kind of wanted to probe a little bit around why you landed on the term body positive. It's been a conversation lately, that sort of terminology. So yeah, in 2021, Lizzo said that the movement has been co-opted by all bodies and has become about celebrating medium and small girls and people who occasionally get roles. And just to be clear, I don't think that that's what you're doing, Zoe, but I wondered how you get the piece around fat politics across in your work. Like, where does that show up for you? Is that sort of a core value for you, as it were? You're nodding, nodding, nodding. I am. Well, I just loved the question because any time that I speak, and I speak a lot to parents or school professionals, kids, librarians, teens, like uh, this type of population. And one of my first slides when I introduce what body positivity is, I always say body positivity as a movement, as a social movement, it's not created for or by people that look like me. I always say that because it wasn't, you know, I enjoy a lot of unearned privileges as like, you know, a white cis woman who I guess I live in probably like a mid-sized body. It's not for me. I struggle a lot with it. And I had a really amazing conversation about this with Deshaun Harrison, who has said body positivity is benevolent anti-fatness. I think I named the 
podcast episode that. And we had, I mean, it was one of my favorite conversations because I do think Deshaun was able to communicate the problem from a different perspective. I think Deshaun's point is that so many people get left out, which is true. I think what you're bringing up and what Lizzo's saying is it's not for all bodies. And it's certainly not for I had a four pack. Now I have a two pack and a little cellulite. It's not for you. And I do think that at the core, we are centering the most marginalized bodies. That's how I think about it. I think about body positivity as a value system. So if I'm body positive, it's not I'm body positive. I accept my ass that's now fatter than it once was. Like, that's not how I think about it. it. (laughs) No, I mean, if that's what you thought, I'm glad you're accepting your fatter ass now. But like, what I think about it is I believe in my values that all bodies, including the most marginalized bodies, the fattest bodies, the most disabled bodies, whatever language feels right to you, right? Like, your body is a good body and it deserves respect, love, dignity, equity, all of these things. And that you, whoever you are, you deserve a positive regard and relationship to your body, whether or not you can ever achieve that. Because I don't want people to confuse body positivity for, let's say, positive body image, which I talk Mm -hmm. a lot about the difference. Mm -hmm. But I'm aware that in using the term body positivity, I'm probably losing some people who might say, oh, there's just another white, relatively thin person using this term. But I do think that my goal, and I talked to Deshaun about this, my goal is to bring people in who might see the term body positivity and say, yeah, I want I want that. It's an accessible terminology. And I think what you're sort of alluding to is Trojan horsing it, where you get people in under the auspices of body positivity and then you can kind of gently bring them along with that more political aspect of this work. As much as I wish for radical fat acceptance for everyone, and that is always the goal that I have in mind and radical acceptance for all bodies, not just fat bodies. I also acknowledge that we live in a deeply fat phobic culture and that that it's going to take time to change that narrative and I was having a conversation recently with a couple of colleagues about how anti-fatness just feels so pervasive and like more acceptable right now than it has at any other point in time so you know I think that it needs all of us doing this work whether it's kind of under the the more gentle auspices of body positivity as well as radical fat acceptance so I will take it. And I also think what you're what you were saying just before this is this piece around, you know, I think what the work that you're doing is not this sort of personal project where we want our individual children to feel amazing about their bodies at all times, but to teach them the inherent worth of all bodies so that they go out into the world not replicating these systems of harm and calling out harm when they see it. Totally. You said it perfectly. I mean, look, the reality is I do think there is this maybe unintended consequence of a body positive boomerang, if you will. Like if you can commit to trying to change the way you see bodies, right, see fatness on behalf of others, right, 
the reality is this boomerang, it does come back to you and it does ultimately benefit your own personal body image. It does. Mm -hmm. The nuance is if it's all about you and your own body image, you know, then I don't know if it's entirely body positive, right? I don't know that it's about your role as a citizen, right? And you know what? I also know having sat for now years with people who just struggle so much with their own body loathing, self-loathing, that if where you're at in this journey is you just need to work on yourself and you don't have much to offer the world, you know, or your neighbor, that's okay too. Like there has to be space for everyone. So I do like the Trojan horse idea, you know, and I want to bring as many people in as possible. And I also want them right away to know there's a difference between body positivity and body image and Mm -hmm. that this is about biases and yeah, human rights, social justice. I'm, I'm not hiding that. But yeah, I think the language is deliberate. Yeah. And I will link back to that podcast that you did with Deshaun Harrison, because I think that that was a really good kind of exploration of some of the potential limitations of the word body positivity and kind of just unpacking that a little bit more. But I guess what I'm hearing you say is we do this work, particularly as parents, in the same way that we talk about bodies from the perspective of racism or ableism. It's a social justice piece that we need to weave through our parenting on sort of all different levels. But one of the things that I really appreciate about your work, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, is how practical and accessible you make body positive parenting. And you talk about this concept of a body positive home. What exactly is that? And I'd love to hear what you think are the foundations or the building blocks. I'm not sure which metaphor we're using. (laughs) What are some of the foundations or building blocks? And then maybe we can talk about some of those more practical tools and scripts and things that you use. There's a kind of theoretical way to think about building a body positive home. I think there is a, a way to just hold the idea in your head, right? I think you're saying what you appreciate is the practical mm-hmm. application of it. And that's what I'm sort of obsessed with, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you make these ideas really practical? And so I do think that if you're a parent and you're saying, yeah, I'm really working on expanding my definition of health and beauty and human worth, like in a way, if all you're doing is doing the thinking, right, and ex- mm-hmm. and maybe reading about that positivity, reading about health at every size, like it, it, that is one of the building blocks, right? I do think the learning and unlearning that a grown-up can do, there are a lot of amazing books out there now. Mm-hmm. I think if you're going to read, and I think this dovetails with like building a body positive library for your mm-hmm. home, right? Can you include Aubrey Gordon's work? Can you include Virgie Tovar's work? Can you include Deshaun Harrison's work for your adult consumption, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so that becomes a building block, both in terms of your own learning and unlearning, but also the visual you start to create in your home. So a lot of advice that I've heard from people is, oh, you you know, you need to hang fat art or have images of diverse Mm -hmm. bodies. And I do think that that functionally can be hard for people, you know, to like figure out where do I get that art? And like, will that go with my couch or, you know? So I think that, again, that can be a kind of a framework. Like, how do I bring 
images into my home. And I think parenting makes this so accessible because children's books, increasingly, we see so many more opportunities to bring in, whether it's a children's book that is overtly about all bodies, like Mm -hmm. Tyler Fader's Bodies Are Cool, cool. which is like the best book I've ever read, or Vashti Harrison's Big. There are ways to bring in, I I did a reel recently where I just found all this body positive wallpaper. Oh, I missed that. That's so cute. We need to link to that. You know, I'm thinking like if you're really bold, you can bring those images on a wall in your kid's bathroom of all the diverse bodies at the beach. But Something that I'm thinking of is I don't know that like my husband's going to want a bold print, so maybe I'll get a swatch and frame it and put that up. So this is where you start to see like if bringing in body diversity is a Mm. complete necessary building block of what I like to say scaffolding a body positive home, then you can be so creative with how you're going to do that. And I'm just riffing, you know, a few ideas, but that's definitely a a, a very important place to start. And then there's other rooms that we can venture into, too. Okay, so you are, yeah, literally thinking about how you design a home, you know, that has representation of all different bodies. I guess what you're getting at is this idea of just normalizing body diversity just by having it out as art and wallpaper and yes. and literally the books that you have on your shelf, like making it a part of the fabric of your home. Exactly. I mean, I'm thinking about a couple years ago when my daughter was maybe one and a half. I put, you know, this brand Somersault, the swimsuits, they started yeah. to do these very bold campaigns. I since have learned that like actual fat activists were actually disappointed that the sizing wasn't inclusive enough. So I hold that. Yeah, I hold that. That catalog came in my mail and I saw on the cover was, I think, I don't remember if it was the cover or what, but there were so many different body types. It it felt like the real life version of Bodies Are Cool. And I put it in her play box with all of her objects because this is an example, right? If I'm intentionally thinking I want her to just as part of her boring little walk from one end of the room to the other for her to just have this option to pick it up and look at all the different bodies. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you start thinking and seeing everything differently and you think, oh, I'm going to comment on this when we read this book or, oh, I'm going to put that in the the baby bin or, oh, look at that wallpaper. I'm totally going, got that extra bedroom or that little wall in the closet. I'm going to put that fun wallpaper on it. And then anyway, so this is like almost a mindset that then begets practical application. Yeah, I love that. And I'm wondering if we could explore the bedroom because I feel like there could be a lot of stuff in there. And one thing that I'm immediately thinking of is, and I forget what you call this, so you're going to have to remind me, but you have like a little hack where you have a bin for clothes that no longer fit. Talk us through that. What, what is it that you call that? It's called the not working for my body anymore bag. This is literally like if you have a bag sitting in your bag collection, like a a tote bag, a target bag, whatever, just take it and write not working for my body anymore on it. Right. And to put this in your closet and your kids' closets, I think the label is important because you're saying it's a normal practice 
to notice if your clothing does not work for your body anymore and put it in this bag because we will donate it. There are accessibility issues. Not everybody can afford to get new clothing. Not everybody can find their sizes. Like, I want to appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And also, this bag should be in everybody's closet because it sends a message both to yourself and your kid. Bodies change. There's nothing wrong with that. If your clothing stops working for you, it's okay. You know where it goes. Yeah, there's a process in place to to support you with through that rather than it being a point of judgment or shame or criticism or which is I, I remember getting messages about when I outgrew my clothes, which hello, I was a child growing. Like of course I'm gonna grow, outgrow my clothes. But that felt wrapped up in a lot of shame. Totally. Like it was my body's fault for not fitting the clothes rather than vice versa. So I I love this and especially with kids, you know, who at least every year, if not more often, we have to swap out sizes and you know, just normalizing that process that bodies grow and they change. What this does, right, like creating a little system in place, like you said, a process, it also leaves space for like sensory challenges. And that's a whole other issue. A lot of toddlers just mm -hmm. experience that. But a lot of neurodivergent folks just have sensory differences. Yeah. And so it normalizes that, too. And it's not just like you know, if I get too tall for my clothes, but also if my body becomes wider and the clothing no longer like buttons, that's okay. That's almost could be a neutral noticing. And mm -hmm. same with like, I, I can't tolerate the seam in this. Yes. Like, or so I fabric think or, the fabric yeah. or whatever, you know, so again, whether the kid even like, I have one in my kid's closet, they never even put anything in there. They mm -hmm. barely put stuff in their laundry bin, you know, but, but it's there. And I, and so I want to connect one dot, especially with young children. There's an Eric Carle book called A House for Hermit Crab. There's no overt message in there about all bodies being good bodies, nothing like that. But again, when you've trained your brain to think this you way, tune in. you tune in. The story begins where the hermit crab realizes, he says, oh, time to move. My house is too small for me. And so without judgment, mm -hmm. he steps out of his shell and he goes on a journey and he finds a bigger shell without yeah. judgment. He just sizes up and then he goes on his journey and he actually finds ways to make his home home, right? He finds adornments like sea anemone. He finds snails that can help him clean. To me, there's just like the reverberation. It's like, whoa, yes, if you feel like your body's a good body, you have clothing that fits you and you're not carrying around all this like loathing and shame, you actually clean yourself. <laughs> you take care of yourself. You know what I mean? It becomes mm -hmm. much more accessible. And then at the end, he has to move again because he needs a bigger shell without any judgment. And then he finds another hermit crab who says, well, I'll take that shell, you know? And so I think that you can even read that book to your kid and say, oh, it's just like us, just like our clothing. Yeah. When it doesn't yeah. fit anymore, we just need a, a bigger home. We need a bigger shell, you know, like to just simply make those little connections. I think mm -hmm. that, again, that starts to feel like more of the fabric in your home. It goes both ways, doesn't it? That you can notice these themes, these body positive themes in books and these body accepting themes, these 
body liberatory themes in books, but you also see the flip side of that, right? And I know that sometimes my instinct is like, I do not want this book in my house. We need to get rid of this. I need to like tear pages out or burn it. Yeah. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. There are books that we absolutely need to do that too. There's some horrifically fat phobic books, but there are also some books where I think we can use that as a point of conversation and start to open up, yeah, a dialogue with our kids. I wonder if you could speak to that point a little bit. Oh, I agree. I mean, I do think there are some books that I'm with you. Like just like it might be one line in a otherwise fine book. Yeah. And I and I do think that, right, sometimes it's okay to just skip. But I, I do think that those are teachable moments to just look at them and be like, ooh, I don't, I don't know about that. What do you think about that? Or like, why do you think they made this character put him in this body? Mm-hmm. Why have you ever noticed that like villains always in a bigger body? What what do you think about that? Yeah, and I say teachable moments, but I don't think we get anywhere by like explicitly like schooling our kids in this. No. I mean, I've tried; mm-hmm. Ooh, it does not work. But to just be like, what do you think about that? Yeah, or I might say, I don't really like that. Like, do you have a bit opinion on that? They might not even know what you're talking about. But again, if you just keep modeling critical thinking, that's because you're building yeah. critical thinking mm-hmm. skills. And I think that's the benefit of stumbling across fucked up shit, you know? <laughs> it becomes like a, a learning opportunity or like a not even learning opportunity like you're saying, like a an opportunity to think critically and challenge and push back. And yeah, so that, you know, when kids go out into the wider world, they are able to use their voice and articulate when they see something that feels icky or feels uncomfortable, that they can exactly. name that and that and, you normalize yeah. that practice. And that you literally modeled it, right? That you modeled what it looks like to see something that most people aren't registering, yeah. but you are. And if you're the one person in that kid's life that's registering it, maybe it's not enough, but it's better than nothing. So I've been talking about these not working for my body anymore bags Mm -hmm. and I write it with a big sharpie and recently I had a pile of clothes on the bed and my husband said what are you doing with this is this laundry or is this for you're not working for my body anymore bag and he said it like I didn't even know that he knew like what I was up to with these bags like because I was just sort of putting them in closets but I think that you think about that moment right where he's very casually saying, is this laundry or is this you're not working for my body anymore bag? And if a kid is in earshot, he's just hearing a regular day, a parent saying to another parent, is this laundry or is this like just not working for your body anymore? Yeah. And that's a very potent little seed, you know? And so I just wanted to share that because I think it it speaks to this this process, the sort of never ending process of creating those whatever, fabric, Mm -hmm. foundation, scaffolding. Yeah, because I think we often talk a lot about like these big, these like sensationalized moments where, you know, it's Mm -hmm. your mother-in-law saying something really fat phobic and then, oh shit, we're scrambling in our brains to come up with the perfect like one-liner zinger to throw back at her. But what I'm sort of taking from what you're saying is that I think that that stuff is, is important and we should talk about it, but also just having these things normalized all around us all the time. Whereas I think those conversations where, you know, if we explode our mother-in-law, it kind of makes it like a big thing at my toddler, well, preschoolers, preschool, 
they had a presentation from the chef and the chef was going around being like, oh, and now we have cake twice a week and was like making this big deal. And I was like, okay, but you realize what you're doing here is making cake a big fucking deal. Right. And it's a similar sort of thing, right? Where we're making these things a big fucking deal sometimes the more we talk about it. But what I'm hearing you say is if we talk about these things just throughout the fabric of our daily lives, right? it just becomes part of our daily lives. Like you embody your values. Yes. That's what it is. I mean, and it's not to say that I have I've I've totally been that parent and that mom making the, the big comment about something when it really bothers me or I think there's probably a time and a place for all of it. Right. Like I think there's mm -hmm. naturally occurring teachable moments. Then there are like proactive prep. Yeah. You know, even when it comes to like confronting a mother in law, like I think there's power in a family trying really hard to just live your values, talk about your values so that when an outsider says something or a family member says something, your family ultimately has a sense like we, we do things differently. Like we, we see the injustice, we see the problem in that. And I think this is very hard because everybody absorbs information differently. You know, I have three different kids with three different sensibilities. I have one kid who's clearly absorbed a lot of what I've said in a way that I noticed that like he'll spontaneously make a little art that like very overtly celebrating all bodies. And I'm like, you're my dream. This is what I had in mind. And then another kid who's like, shut up already. Like, call it junk food. I'm laughing at that joke. Leave me alone. And I'm yeah. like, wow, well, that might be a little bit because I pushed too hard, you know. But, you know, I don't mean to pick on him because I think that ultimately they know that their family's values are inclusive and that doesn't mean they're all of our kids are going to emerge these like perfect little activists. But I do also hear even with that one that's like kind of pushing back on my overt attempts. I have also noticed the way he thinks about injustice more broadly. Mm -hmm. And so I start to say, OK, like this is a long term project with kids. Yeah. And the best we can do is just keep affirming them. And I think, again, these different rooms of our homes, they have a lot of power to yeah. to do that. And I also think about how confusing this must be for kids. Yeah. Because they're hearing a set of messages from you at home. And, you know, we hope that we have planted them deep down inside somewhere and that one day that's going to blossom, right? Right. And at the same time, they are getting these fatphobic messages from absolutely everywhere these anti-fat messages and not just anti-fatness but all sorts of forms of prejudice are normalized in schools right and from their peers and their peers parents and you know not to like put a total downer on it but we're asking kids to hold a really big cognitive dissonance yeah there and sometimes it's going to fall down on the side that we don't want it to necessarily but I think again with that having that infrastructure at home in place that the balance tips towards not being a jerk towards people <laughs> <laughs> yeah no but I think what you're I, I appreciate what you're naming and I think I want to sit with that for a while because it's true when you swim upstream as a parent let's say you're really building a body positive home. And I do think that's net positive for your kids and for the world, I, I period. Yeah. But I do think you're right that there's more, I mean, that's cognitive dissonance 
we want, right? We want Mm -hmm. them to have been told all food is good food so many times and not just told it, but like seen it, right? You know, Mm -hmm. seen the lack of moralizing around food so that when they hear it and this has happened, that same kid who I was telling you about my son who kind of pushes back, he came home once and he said, this lunch monitor said salami's unhealthy and she wouldn't let me take more. And so, yes, I did write an email about that and ended up speaking to the school because she didn't know what she was talking about. She was just thinking she was sending a helpful lesson. Of course, it's a science teacher and science teachers are always sort of filled with misinformation about nutrition. It's but really worrying, isn't it? <laughs> the science teacher out. <laughs> I know. I know. And it's, you know, it's the language if every kid is only allowed to take a certain amount of salami because there has to be enough for the group, sure. But he told me, he said, she said it wasn't healthy and I knew you wouldn't like that. And he's right. I didn't like that. And so I think that that's cool, you know, and and Leslie, my friend who she and I founded Full Bloom together, we talked to you, her daughter ultimately was like, a little nine-year-old whistleblower in her school because they were weighing kids without parents' consent. I love that. She told her mom. She said something didn't feel right about it. She's right. It was wrong. Yeah, they weren't getting consent. Like No, I mean, there's just no safeguards in place. But that is incredible, you know, both of these kids. Like, she's talking funny about salami. They're weighing people, and that doesn't feel right. Well, I'm so glad that these kids know something's up. Because then they can tell a grown-up and the grown-up can help. But I think that's powerful, you know, just those little speaks, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Because it sounds like your son is, yeah, he's maybe pushing back on you. But it almost sounds like that's more to do with the fact that you're his mom it's and he's me. a kid. And yeah. <laughs> but that message, even though to your face, he's still like, fuck you, mom. Yeah. At the same time, he's absorbing the messages. Yeah. And it's at least, at the very least, He's pausing and thinking a little bit more when he's getting those diet culture messages from the school, whatever person. Give us one or two more real quick bedroom hacks. Okay. So when I think about the bedroom, I think about the closet. I will also say this is maybe not a hack, kind of. It's like a mindset. I think when I think about the bedroom, I think about sleep too. Mm. And one of the things that I think we completely forget about in our definition of healthy, right? It's like healthy eating is what comes to mind. But sleep is like so important. And so I love Lisa Damore. She says sleep is the glue that holds us together. I think that is so true. I notice and talk about embodied, like, mm-hmm. like really being embodied. When I am well rested, I am a different human being from when mm-hmm. I'm not. When we use the word healthy, health with our kids, if we hear them using the word healthy, it doesn't matter what room you're in. I always like to insert health is such a tricky word. Mm-hmm. Health is so tricky. Healthy is such a tricky word, like on uh, uh, repeat, because when I think about the bedroom and I think about sleep, I think about, wow, we spend so much time thinking about healthy food, unhealthy food, but we're forgetting that this is a huge part of overall well-being and health, too. Mm. So that's one. But when I think about the bedroom and the closet, well, you tell me. There's one more closet hack, and then I think there's also, like, mirrors, because mirrors are in closets, too. So Yeah, so tell us one wardrobe hack and one 
mirror hack because I think they're super interesting as well. One of my favorite hacks, and I think this applies to people of honestly all genders, and it's a great hack to tell your teens and tweens about, even if they like roll their eyes and they never use it. It's the hair elastic hack that is often only offered up to pregnant people. Because they're the only people whose bodies are allowed to change, right? Only with the caveat that it has to go back afterwards, right? Exactly. Exactly. That it's only suitable for the, maybe you could get away with like postpartum a couple months, but then you can't use this hack anymore. No, this hack is like, I think like menopausal people run with it, tweens, teens, puberty. Oh my gosh. And just like general life. This is a very important hack. And if you take a hair elastic and you thread it through the button loop, like the Mm -hmm. button hole, and then you make a little knot and then you pull it over to connect it to the button, you've literally created an extra, I mean, it could be as much as two inches for yourself. And sometimes that's all you need to just get you through that day or just till the next moment when you can get a pair of pants that actually fit you. But again, when I I say this is so useful to talk to teens and tweens and kids about, like, this is a hack by telling them, just put a couple in your bag. Like, if ever your belly is like, oh, I can't take my pants, just like create a little space for yourself. Even if they don't use it, you're you're telling them and yourself, it's okay. It's okay if my, and and it cannot just be for pregnant people that this is okay. Like, we all expand and swell and pudge and puff and like that's because we're human fucking beings you have a really cool reel showing this hack as well so i'll i'll link to that because yeah it's really helpful tell us some fun mirror things that you like to do as well so mirrors are tricky i'll boil it down to a hack but i think people know when they have well they don't always know but a lot of people have a problematic relationship to the mirror agreed yeah right like you If you're looking at yourself a lot in the mirror, it might be a sign that you have some body image struggles going on. Like if there's a lot of checking your body in a mirror, that is most likely maintaining negative thoughts and feelings you might be having about your body. So, you know, hacks are not therapy. A lot of people do need therapy around body image. And mirror exposure therapy is a type of therapy that we offer in my practice. And it's very powerful, I think, for people. But I've noticed that even if you don't struggle with acute body image disturbances, like if you're like, yeah, I just want to get better at even just tolerating looking at myself in the mirror. With kids, look, mirrors with kids, especially like babies, I love mirrors and babies. I mean, like, learning about the sense, you know, that you're a person, being able to see and study in the mirror. There's Mm -hmm. so many like psychological benefits that come from looking in mirrors. And then, of course, at a certain point, like people get really fucked up about mirrors. So like what happens, right? But building descriptive language skills for kids helps them with their emerging body image and also food acceptance skills, which I know you know that. Like, but Being able to look in the mirror in a playful way with your kid, whether it's like you're brushing teeth or, you know, you're getting changed and just sort of spontaneously say, like, let's look for a specific shape. Mm. Like, can you find a triangle? Can you find a semicircle? Can you find a lump, like something lumpy? Can you find something squishy? Like, 
you can do this in so many different ways, but to really focus on descriptive language, form, color, mm, shape, texture, yeah. texture. Yeah. Because this is not the same thing as scrutinizing your body, but to be able to look at your body, and this is a playful version to do almost preventatively with kids. But what this ultimately translates to as an adult is being able to look at especially parts of your body that you really struggle with and use hopefully this language that you've been building because you're practicing with your kid to be able to notice the shapes and the the line, the form, the function. This is the whole idea of like body neutralizing, being able to see what's actually there, not yeah. sort of what your mind interprets is there but even if all your kid finds is the nose oh i found a triangle well that's right this is sort of a triangle it's like a triangle oh it has a little like a little slope or a, a bump like words that are not even nose or ear mm -hmm. because i think that it, it it helps this other part of the brain be able to look in a different way yeah and i think you know i'm just thinking about bellies and roundness and just like the fullness of bellies and and being able to name that in a neutral non-judgmental way with our toddlers and our preschoolers and our younger kids like how protective that could be if they bring that totally. with them all the way through oh i feel like we could be talking about hacks all over the place <laughs> and maybe we need to get you back for part two so we can explore some of these these other rooms but we end every conversation with my guests and I sharing their snack so this is basically anything that you've been loving lately it can be a book or a podcast a show a literal snack anything you want so Zoe what have you been snacking on lately <laughs> I don't know what it says about me but the two things that are coming to mind one is a show and one is a actual snack go on go for so, it let's have okay. them both the show is Chicago Med. Oh, is this well, like a ER situation? I think it's an ER situation. And I can't even tell you why. I think I just love the actor Oliver Platt so much. He plays this like avuncular psychiatrist. And I can't even say I recommend the show. And it was probably not worthwhile that I shared it. But I will say as like a very busy working parent, I am really relishing the laying on the couch watching this show and just sort of losing myself into the like drama of the doctors and, and all the different medical diagnoses. And like there's a psychiatrist that always comes in and mm -hmm. there's always some kind of psychiatric episode. And I just like really enjoying that as like a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like I was going to say like a guilty pleasure, but that's not what I, mean. I almost I mean, said it's it like too. you're like it's my play food. Yeah. <laughs> my it's interesting because I think about that if I the snack that I'm really enjoying right now, it's it does. It has a similar feeling. It's like it's just really satisfying, comforting. comforting. I've recently discovered Chobani yogurt like okay. Chobani. Yeah, is yeah. A I know that yogurt brand with granola, peanuts and oh. honey. Peanuts are so underrated, man. Like peanuts and yogurt. I mean, it was like a very mm -hmm. random choice, but. There's something about like the crunch, like the scratch, like there's something texturally going on there with the like honey sweetness and the tartness of the yogurt. So that in Chicago Med is like how I'm closing my days and it's really restorative. 
That sounds so good. Okay, so just to bring this episode like full circle to some of what we were talking about before, my snack, my thing that I'm very excited about is that since starting preschool, my three-year-old is not napping mm-hmm. and is going to bed at eight o'clock at night, like consistently for a week, which has literally never happened in three whole years. So you have a whole evening now. Yeah, it feels like I have an eternity. Like he was going to bed at like 10, 11 o'clock every oh. night because his previous childcare was letting him sleep way too long during oh, the day. Gosh. And it was a whole thing. I am enjoying having some rest and recuperation. And what is so interesting to me is that he was sleeping like 70 minutes during the day and then getting, I don't know, like eight hours at night, maybe a little bit less. But now he's getting more overall sleep than that broken sleep during the day. And it's just, it makes me really angry that our last childcare provider was yeah. not listening to it. So when we were asked to cut the nap, but I will just add this caveat for anyone who's like, oh my God, my kid is not sleeping. Um, he does still wake up once a night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but I can take it because he falls back to sleep and it's fine. But yeah, it, like the fact that we have an evening now is revolutionary. All right, Zoe, can you let everybody know where they can find out more about you and your work? Well, you can head to my new website, www.bodypositivehome.com. And my Instagram, that's where the action is right now. That's at mybodypositivehome. I will link to both of those in the show notes so everyone can come and find you and follow your work. And thank you so much for coming on. It was so fun to talk to you. Same. And they have another snack. Thanks so much for listening to the Can I Have Another Snack podcast. You can support the show by subscribing in your podcast player and leaving a rating and review. And if you want to support the show further and get full access to the Can I Have Another Snack universe, you can become a paid subscriber. It's just £5 a month or £50 for the year, as well as getting tons of cool perks. You help make this work sustainable and we couldn't do it without the support of paying subscribers. Head to laurathomas.substack.com to learn more and sign up today. Can I Have Another Snack is hosted by me, Laura Thomas. Our sound engineer is Lucy Dearlove. Fiona Bray formats and schedules all of our posts and makes sure that they're out on time every week. Our funky artwork is by Caitlin Pracer and the music is by Jason Barkhouse. Thanks so much for listening. Can I have another snack? <laughs> <laughs>